Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to September's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, and uh, we're going to run through some of the key talking points from the last month. Hi, Cormac. How are you doing? Hi, Matt. All good here. Uh, how about yourself? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. So maybe we'll we'll rip through this quickly because it's uh, it's quite a, a slow news month. Maybe we'll find something yeah. interesting to talk about, yeah. though. So It's the um, uh, summer just... lull and sit and wait. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. August may have been a slow news month, September a little bit more interesting, but we'll get round to that when the time is right. Maybe yeah. just uh, kick off in China. What news there? China, again, but the EV sales are a little bit flat. We have the price, and uh, there was a price war truce, and at the beginning of August, again, towards the end of August, it was all yeah. kicked off again. Huge discounts by we, Tesla. You know what happened there? The uh, the Chinese sort of uh, auto body sort of knocked some heads together and then had to roll it back for because of anti-competition concerns. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they went back to same old, same old. I'd love to be buying a car in China. I mean, it's, it is, it's the amount of units available of Volkswagens, BYDs, Teslas is phenomenal. Chinese EV exports is really growing as well. I'm contacted every day by, because of the price wars, the Chinese second-hand car market is taking an absolute battering. It's more expensive to buy a second-hand car there than a brand new EV. They're trying to get all these cars out of the country. So, I mean, it's interesting you say EV sales are, are flat. I mean, that's that, that's kind of on a month-on-month -month basis, but they're still growing pretty robustly. They're up, what, 40% year-on-year or something? So it's uh, yeah. pretty, pretty reasonable yeah, growth rate. So that's the these repercussions around around the market. If you don't have the downstream demand, then we have what we might be seeing in lithium, which is the prices are crashing out in lithium. I'm sure you're aware at the moment in the spot market, and that is being put down to, as you said, the growth year and year is up. Month and month is only up like six seven percent in July to August. I only focus on BEVs myself. When, but there's uh, quite a quite a yeah. substantial growth in in plug-in hybrids, isn't there, yeah. in China at the moment? Yeah, plug-in hybrids is a huge market in China. There's, I think, they must have the most highest inventory models. I mean, there's a BYD have about four or five different plug-in hybrids. Mm. Ideal, obviously, Tesla haven't gone down that route, but the um, plug-in hybrid market is about half that of EV sales, but it's pretty large and growing in China compared to the rest of the world. Where... It was really interesting because for many years, Europe was kind of the leader in plug-in hybrids. And now Europe sort of slowed down with regards to plug-in hybrids, but That's China right. seems to be coming up very strongly. So it's going to be interesting to see whether uh, Chinese users will actually utilize the hybrid portion or just use it as a, as a petrol vehicle, which is what a lot of um, European buyers did, basically just using it as a, as a petrol vehicle with a smaller tank. and, and uh, pocketing the tax credits they're not as a, as attractive for plug-in hybrids but you can still get the uh, double carbon credit for the automotive producers so it's still producing an electric vehicle it used to be equivalent to a bev actually not sure what it is now mm. but um 
so you got two times you got the plug-in hybrid and you got the hybrid range extender which is a popular model in the bigger uh, suvs like ideally hmm. i've gone down the uh, range extender which you don't really see well bmw have range extenders as well but as you said it, china's really grasped the uh adopted the plug-in hybrids and championed by byd and ideally and of course the the plug-in hybrids have smaller batteries and use less lithium etc so um you know that that could yeah. have a a knock-on well, yeah. impact on raw material demand they as used well. to not use any lithium right yeah. all the priuses were nickel metal hydride and only until recently and they still sell the nickel metal hydride uh, priuses but uh, the premium version is lithium but that's slightly different isn't it that's a hybrid electric vehicle or HEV. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah we certainly miles. don't track hybrid but we track plug-in hybrids and you were saying there's quite an interesting trend in terms of penetration in china as well yeah yeah it reminds me of and you'll remember this when uh, lfp production overtook nmc production and battery production so right now between plug-in hybrids and uh, bevs it's about 60 40 to ice so the trend is is looking like we're going to see a crossover in the next 18 months or so wow that will be a, an amazing yeah. sort of result for the industry if evs go to a, a greater market share than than ices that will be i mean you'd have to really sit up and take notice then yeah okay anything else sort of on the on the sell side in sort of august beginning of september um, yeah sales yeah well every month in cell production we're breaking records so it's uh mm. we just went over the uh, 73 gigawatt hour production in china which is phenomenal. Looks like we're going to head towards about 800 gigawatt hours by the end of the year in, in China, cell mm -hmm. production. The news on EVs is less rosy. I was going through the numbers the other day. It looks like we'll probably uh, surpass uh, last year's EV sales, BV sales by a million in China, which is uh, wasn't in line with last year's growth projections. Although we have what's known as the golden month, September, and the silver mm -hmm. month, October, which is um, historically big car selling months. So it could yeah. make up for it in the back end. I guess we'll sort of have to sort of uh, keep an eye on that. Definitely with the, the national, is it the national day holidays in October? We we tend to see a little bit of a, a pickup in terms of demand. So um, fingers fingers crossed that comes out. One of the things that, that's been quite interesting in the last couple of months is that ESS, so stationary energy storage, went out of the blocks at an amazing pace at the beginning of this year and the end of last year. Seems to be slowing a little bit now. Are you sort of picking up on that as well? Not in terms of ESX ex exports from China. They're growing every month. Uh, it's almost 10 gigawatt hours total for the year. And mm. as you might remember, in US alone last year was about 8 gigawatt hours total installation. So yeah, it's, it's huge. Uh, it's huge volumes of Primary batteries being exported out of uh, our uh, LFP and ESS batteries going to US and Germany. Interesting, because it looks like the rate of growth of ESS battery production sort of slowed down. I mean, the last two or three months have been much of a muchness, pretty flat after blistering increases in the back end of last year, beginning of this year. So I wondered if that's because there have been delays to sort of utility scale projects in in Europe and the US, particularly in the US, or whether something else is at play, because we're also seeing blistering demand for for ESS in China as well, aren't we? 
Huge, yeah, huge demand in China. It's been a little um, hiccup in the uh, LFP arena in China. A lot of LFP factories coming online. A lot of factories had to idle. So, for example, the semi-annual reports came out of some of the Chinese largest LFP producers, and 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 wasn't looking good in terms of revenue. And that's because of low capacity utilization, because of overcapacity, I assume. Overcapacity. We have players leaving the industry. As you know, everybody from uh, titanium dioxide producers to coal miners were entering uh, the uh, lithium iron phosphate cam game. The sale price has been decreasing all year, regardless of, as you know, from April till uh, when um, lithium carbonate made the turnaround, LFP was still going down. The LFP sector is suffering from a little bit of overcapacity. The build out ahead of demand was huge. The annual capacity of LFP cam is like 3 million tons production capacity just huge, way ahead of the mar- what the market needs. That's a nameplate capacity, of course, but mm. um, still a very large number. You know, we obviously know what there's an issue with battery yield, with capacity utilization in cell plants. What's the sort of maximum capacity utilization that a cam plant can run out? Is it is it nor- uh, like a normal industry level, like sort of 88, 90, uh, 90% or something like that? Depends if you call cam or PCAM, but cam, uh, they, they, they're not running at a full operational rate due to downstream demand. So a lot of plants are in care and maintenance. Price of lithium carbonate also plays a factor. There's a number of factors at play. And as soon as you not, don't run the plant at 100% efficiency, then you run into problems. The cam producers are encountering cancelled orders because there's also, I think we discussed in an earlier podcast, there is a inventory of LFP cells also f- left over from last year and yeah. earlier this year that still have to be shifted. The market's still trying to um, reach balance, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and and this balance, uh, this supply-demand balance, many observers don't think, and I, th- I don't know if you agree with it or not, we probably won't see any, uh, this sorted out till the back end of next year, maybe. I think we'll probably see a, a, a short-scale restocking in Q4 of this year, but I, I don't see it being sort of long lived. And as you say, there's there's quite a lot of inventory sort of sitting in the in the midstream. So whether it's LFP cam, ternary cam, ternary cells, um, there's quite a lot of inventory sitting in the system. And the big question is whether that inventory is usable or whether it has to pass through recycling to be usable. So those are kind of unanswerable questions. And we sort of won't be able to get answers to those questions until we actually see what's going on with it. But yeah. inventory in the system is interesting. And and we've seen it actually, it's interesting you talk about LFP here because we've seen it on the ternary side in China that lithium hydroxide inventories have started to build a little bit in the last couple of months. And lithium hydroxide prices have actually underperformed carbonate prices by quite a considerable margin in the last few weeks or so. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens there, because at the moment, then if lithium hydroxide prices are so low, spodumene prices are are, are relatively elevated still. So you've got to think that most converters are not sort of profitable at these prices, certainly the spot prices. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether we start to see shutdowns at converters. You know, we've already to some extent seen some shutdowns of high cost lipidolite production to carbonate and also high cost recycling because recycling is towards the top end of the cost curve as well. So if we start to see large scale converter shutdowns in China, that could provide the floor for restocking. I think if we start to see prices stabilize, we will start to see people come back into the market to to build up their stocks again. Yeah, yeah, it's 
good point. They are converters shutting down already. It's been happening actually for the last couple of months. Profitability is seen around the uh, 200,000 ton price for lithium carbonate on the market, 200,000 RMB per ton. And that is the floor, as you said, for recycling. A lot of these converters need to make that. And with the price heading south, yeah, as you said, I've, I've and, and I'm hearing out. actually that the actual conversion prices have in, increased substantially as well. So, I mean, you know, two or three years ago, the conversion price was about $2,000 a ton. We're now hearing it's up to about sort of three or $4,000 a ton, which obviously has sort of impacts in your profitability and your margin of the converters. And I don't know whether that's due to the fact that they're now processing lower quality material coming in from from a lot of places, you know, 5%, 4%, 5.5% material, or whether power prices have gone up or whether the prices of reagents have gone up. But certainly the, you know, the price of of the conversion is now is now higher. And obviously if your if your feedstock price remains at a relatively elevated level, and, and let's be frank about this, five years ago feedstock prices were around about five hundred dollars a ton. And they're now sort of around about $3,000 a ton. So that's an elevated level. I think, you know, that we should see some quite large scale shutdowns. I've seen a few already. I've seen my investments in early stage mining assets pull out our pause, press pause in the projects in China. And also we have a peak season of brine production in China right now mm. uh, coming to that. And if when all that comes into the market, it's it could be a, another drop in the, again. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I mean, round about the beginning of September, we saw Albemarle go public on its higher bid for, for Liontown, three bucks. So clearly Albemarle is still a believer in the uh, long-term outlook for um, spodumene concentrate in, in particular and, and lithium prices in general. And every day there seems to be a China auction for... Uh, lipidolite sort of projects in in southern china and these things seem to get sort of gazillions and gazillions of bids and 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 close at sort of you know a thousand times the opening bid level so the industry clearly still believes there's likely to be a deficit of of lithium and that prices are, are likely to remain elevated so it's going to be very very interesting to to see how we go and i think the other point just to make is when we're talking about prices here we're talking about spot prices and spot prices are still a relatively small percentage of the market compared to to contract prices so when we talk about sort of 200,000 RMB a ton we're talking about spot prices and a lot of these converters are still selling material on contract to cathode makers so it's a relatively small portion of the industry that's related to spot and spot is an awful lot more volatile than the contract prices um, that, yeah. that we see from the miners yeah. and from the big converters. You know, very little lithium carbonate is exported out of China. Which, uh, a lot of lithium hydroxide, uh, but yeah. very little lithium carbonate. So they, you know, Chinese don't really, well, they do, in some cases they do, but uh, uh, they like to play the spot market if it, if it agrees to, uh, if it works for them. But they, they, I don't imagine there's that many long-term lithium carbonate contracts in China. Is that mm. what we think? I think there are some some pretty major long-term contracts. More material seems to go into to longer-term contracts than it does in the spot. Interesting in carbonate, but in in hydroxide, we see hydroxide much more exposed to spot prices because, and I think yeah. that's a that's a function of how the industry has grown so rapidly. So carbonate was the 
area where we saw quite long-term contracts between the Latin American brine producers and the Chinese and Korean cathode makers, effectively. And then the nature of the spodumene concentrate hydroxide market was that the Australian Western Australian miners were developing into that space and they were much happier to sell into the spot market or sell on volume contracts that were exposed to the spot market than the uh, Latin American players were. So I think we see much more sort of hydroxide material exposed to to shorter term market trends than we do carbonate material, which, which may still be on relatively longer term contracts. The Chinese domestic production dwarfs the imports of lithium carbonate now. Yeah. And that's certainly true. So, I mean, now we see like a 30-30-30 a split between lipidolite sources, which presumably are mostly on spot prices, spodumene sources and, and recycling. So uh, I think definitely more is going into the spot market than previously. Yeah. But a lot of it is still tied up into quarterly pricing contracts that are exposed to the spot market, but not the spot market, as it were. Yeah, agree. Just uh, maybe quickly flag this month's issue of Battery Materials Review, which um, has uh, what we describe as the definitive guide to assessing investment risks in battery raw materials projects. And basically what we're saying is that, you know, there's really two ways of, of losing money in this space. One of them is getting the cyclical direction wrong. And let's face it, we've all got the cyclical direction wrong over time. But the second one is not really correctly assessing the risks of a particular investment. And uh, we've uh, gone into that in quite a lot of detail across the whole of the battery raw material space in BMR and sort of tried to explain in a little bit more detail what the risks are as 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 we perceive them. And I, I think it's a very, very important thing to bear in mind, not just for stock market investors, but also for industry players who are looking at long-term investments in the mining industry, perhaps are not correctly valuing the risks of some of these companies, particularly on the environmental and social side. And I, I think that it's something that the industry as well as financial investors needs to bear in mind. Yeah, yeah, I run into it every day and I'm sure you do too. The thoughts of investors or larger companies, OEMs who are getting into the mining game, their view is quite simple. They think it's just digging rocks out of ground, but there's many ways where you can go wrong once you dip your toe into the mining sector. And it's about experience which you know, they clearly don't have uh, mm. and managing the risks. And so I always warn any company who's getting into mining sector that, you know, it's filled with sharks and uh, yeah. you gotta know what you're doing. Well, I mean, I've been invested in the mining se- or investing in the mining sector for, for 20 odd years now. And I don't think uh, I'd be surprising anybody to, to let you know that I still make mistakes, but it's made easier by the fact that I know a lot of the people who, who are running these companies but people coming in from from elsewhere in the industry don't necessarily know who's running these companies. And I think it's difficult to take a view on what could be a 20, 30, 40 year investment if one, you don't know the people and two, you don't really understand the industry. So I think that one of the biggest mistakes that, that, that people are making at the moment is not correctly assessing what the risks are of some of these investments. Yeah, correct. But you know, 
Having said that, there was some great news coming out of uh, Canada, right? Lithium carbonate coming out of the um, NAL project, I think, uh, with uh, Piedmont and uh, Sanoa. Yeah, there are some success stories out there. And, you know, we talk about them regularly. Um, Pilbara, the sort of Mount Catlin operation, Mount Marion operation in South Australia, Wajina, Sigma's project in, in Brazil that's come into production, the AMG project in Brazil, and now uh, North American Lithium that restart there. So there are some definite guys who do do well, but there are also management teams that don't hit their aims in the yeah. sector. And I think that investors have to be aware of that. Anyway, I will get well, off my one high la- One last question about that. One last yeah. question. So Portugal has been viewed as the Chile for Europe. A lot of action going on under there. How do you see that coming to fruition? I think the companies have been working down there for five, six years. To tell you the truth, I think at, at this point, the Portuguese government and the Portuguese regional governments, it's in their control. The companies have done all that they can from their side. And it's just a question of whether the Portuguese government and and local governments can enable the projects um, because there's definite resources there. And there's definite potential to produce those resources. And there's always going to be people in an area next to a mine who don't want that mine to go ahead. Of course, that's, that's normal. But whether you completely disrupt what could be a very, very important industry for Europe, because four or five people don't want a mine, even though having a mine in that in- area can directly benefit 50,000 people and indirectly benefit millions, perhaps billions of people. That's a decision for local and national government to make. Spoken like a, a true tr- mining man. Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> At the end of the day, mines succeed or fail because they have a social license to operate. Yeah, yeah. And it's very, very important that miners and, and develop mi- miners respect the rights of the local population, whether that's the local indigenous population in some regions or just the population that might be living next to their mine. It's very important that, that, that companies invest in the local area. They minimize the environmental impacts of their mine. They contribute to long-term funds so that the, the mines can be successfully reclaimed after they've been used. And all of this sort of stuff that's that's very important in the industry and will be very important in the industry going forward. But at the end of the day, the the companies can only do so much. And it it comes down in so many cases to how supportive the the local and national government is in terms of whether these these projects go ahead or not. Good examples, uh, Yang Feng in Mexico, I think they lost their license. That's a national government situation. I mean, after probably, what, four or five years of working on that project, the the, yeah. the Mexican government turned around and said it was nationalizing the, the lithium industry. Ganfeng tried to sort of work with them for a number of years, and that doesn't seem to be working. And of course, you, you do sit there and go, well, how many lithium projects are underway in Mexico now? And it's zero. So, you know, has the Mexican government's strategy of you know, making money from the lithium industry really been successful. And you'd have to say at this point, it's it's not because they've scared off all of the investment in, in that region. Obviously, we talk about resource nationalism a lot, and uh, there've been a lot of pushes by governments to cash in on the lithium thematics. And I think, you know, it's only a matter of time until we see sort of royalty rates in a, in a number of countries rising. 
by the way, if people think that's just going to be emerging markets, they've probably got another thing coming. I mean, I think royalty rates will go up across the board in developed countries as well as developing countries. It's going to be very, very important for, for a lot of these regions. And I refer particularly to Canada here. Canada's got an amazing resource endowment, but it needs to open up the planning process and accelerate the planning process for a lot of these mines in a lot of these key areas if, if they don't want to be left behind. National and local governments can have a, a, a very substantial impact on in terms of whether projects are viable or not. Yeah. What we're seeing really is a key breakout in areas, right? Canada for North America, more or less. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we talk about lithium. I mean, obviously, we've been talking yeah, about Portugal for many years for Europe. There's a small operation in Finland. There's some really exciting graphite projects in the Nordic region. Yeah, it seems you to know, be consolidating a little bit, right? In North America, I mean, Canada's kind of got everything raw materials wise. I mean, it's got lithium, it's got graphite, it's got nickel, it's got yeah. cobalt. We think it's got a bit of, of manganese, it's got phosphate projects. Canada has the potential to kind of be the mine, if you will, for the North yeah, American uh, I was thinking, yeah, industry yeah. and and also the processing plant for the North American yeah, I was going to say, uh, with this uh, Ontario power, would be yeah. the Ning Ninga of uh, North yeah. America. Yeah. Uh, and, and also this, the, you know, this big industrial plant going on in Quebec. I mean, we've got cathode plants going on there, uh, yeah. potentially anode plants. You know, people are looking at, at manganese like um, anode materials cathode materials, you name it. So so Canada really has the potential to set itself up as the um, the engine, if you will, of the, sorry for the horrific pun, of the EV uh, story uh, in North America. Motor. You can use the but, word motor now, electric yeah, motor. Only, yeah. only if it can get these mining projects into production in the near term. Because yeah. if it doesn't, then there's operations and projects elsewhere in the world which will be able to come on uh, and replace that Canadian supply. So, you know, it's really up to the national and local governments to catalyze and accelerate these projects. And at the moment, you know, we've seen that the, the Canadian government's been very, very supportive for exploration companies. The flow back in terms of exploration financing has been very, very helpful for exploration stage companies. And there's a lot of investment going on downstream in the industry, but what the development companies and and the you know the companies that are ready for construction are looking for is they're looking for some streamlining of the of the planning the planning rules because at the moment four or five years and it's kind of a black hole you don't know what's going to happen on each individual stage it's better than europe that's not really saying something but it's a lot worse than australia and it's a lot worse than brazil and a lot worse than africa or other other countries and regions which yeah. are competing with but you gotta you, you gotta say canada are well positioned to judge a uh, mining project on its merits right with what they've been doing for many years now in the mining sector one of the leading mining countries but uh, yeah you know i was uh, the the restart of north american lithium that more or less went went off as planned i mean yeah lithium carbonate yeah so if the rest of the industry goes like that then i think some of the targets set can be hit yeah yeah, no, I would agree on that. Uh, I would agree on that. So fingers crossed, we continue to see positive performance by companies. Yeah. On that, let's move up uh, downstream and uh, tell us about your trip around Europe. Well, first of all, I've got to, got to thank the uh, team from the investment bank, uh, Piper Sandler, for uh, taking me 
on a tour we uh, we actually had uh, four or five days on the trip lots of traveling but was ever thus but uh, it was yeah. very interesting to always uh, met with management teams in in oslo of um development companies like uh frere yeah uh, and moro batteries um and also uh vianode which has a very interesting um synthetic graphite project in the nordic region yeah. um we met with oem and toured some sites so we were lucky enough to to visit the uh, uh, tesla gigafactory in berlin oh, and very nice also the volvo cars site uh, near gothenburg and also Fisker's R&D facility also uh, near Gothenburg. So that was very interesting. But I, I've got to say that the the jewel in the crown of my trip was a trip to uh, Northvolt's um, Et Gigafactory in, in the northern part of Sweden. I keep saying this, the, the most off-repeated word I've said describing the trip is impressive. I was really impressed with the, the scale of the thing it was just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well, since you were on site, maybe you... What's not impressive is that Northvolt is almost as old as uh, CATL. Why aren't they producing cells yet? <laughs> well, nominally they're as old as CATL, but they didn't manage to sort of get the financing and get the the projects underway yeah. as quickly as CATL, did they? They only managed to sort of push into sort of actual fast track development, what about four or five years ago? So, um, Whereas CATL has been uh, been banging away uh, for a lot of time, so I think you know that that was a a reaction to the adoption rates and 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 actually government and um, private market support in their respective uh, yeah. operating regions. Obviously, um, site visit notice in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, uh, along with my conclusions. But um, yeah. yeah, well, it's great to see. You're buoyed by what you've seen happening up in uh, mostly the Nordic regions for uh, EV and EV battery development and, and the raw materials. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are still some questions left. And obviously, we we talked about some of them at the beginning of this podcast with regards to the potential for overcapacity in, in cell manufacturing. I think there are still some questions left about um, the, the ability of, of European plants to compete given the higher cost of production here than elsewhere in the world. Yes. In terms of the scale of the operation and the development, it was very impressive. I mean, one very interesting point is that Tesla's Giga Berlin has a completed cell manufacturing facility on site. They're not producing cells in that plant. They're importing them in from from China in the US. I thought they dismantled that line and sold it, sent it to Texas. That obviously didn't happen then, I guess. One of the rumors I don't know about the rumors, but I do know that they are importing the cells for, for that factory from elsewhere. Yeah. So, you know, if that says anything to you about the relatively relative economics of, of operating a cell factory in Europe compared to other regions, I think that's a, a very important takeaway. And, uh, you know, maybe Norfolk gets around that because obviously in the in the Nordic region, you've got lower cost hydroelectric power i think that's something that you know europe needs to consider when it's it's throwing its weight around it as a block and also introducing very significant regulations into what's a very immature industry you know i know that europe does tend to prefer to use the stick method rather than the carrot method of incentivization but i think it is quite dangerous 
to go in in an immature industry and regulate as strongly as the eurozone has and it does risk actually putting off investment in the block i think it's a concern for the chinese battery makers and one of the strategies dealing with two different things one is the ira which is completely different to the european policies mm. in terms of carbon border and you know as you can see many of the chinese Every day, every week, there's a uh, Chinese battery ma announcement uh, in Europe. The biggest one being CATL's 100 gigawatt hour plant in Hungary. And mm. since they've already built a 100 gigawatt hour plant, are building it still, but in, in China, something they, they can, can definitely do. But they're running into the problems uh, of uh, endangered shrews, uh, ferns, water uh, issues. So, uh, you know, there's been a couple of uh, complaints against uh, CATL's plans in, in Hungary already, which is delaying those projects. So even when they come to Europe, environmental laws, political landscape is much more difficult what they're used to dealing with. And, and I think it's going to be very interesting. I mean, uh, obviously, BYD is looking at uh, investing in an auto plant in Europe. They've said so. A couple of the other Chinese OEMs are, are whispering about it. Gili may have an interest as well. And we've seen a lot of the Chinese sort of midstream companies, the cathode producers, the anode material producers announce plants in Europe. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how easy the Chinese companies find it to operate here. And I, I mean, I think Tesla didn't say this, but but from from what what I've gathered from from press reports from their sort of focus and, and the re-evaluation of their focus, I think Tesla's found it very difficult to operate in Europe. And yeah. it'd be very interesting to see, you know, whether other companies from outside the region also run into those those issues. And if they do, you've got to worry about the, you know, the viability of the of the European industry going forward. Any announcements of any, you know, Tesla doesn't waste time in announcing expansion plans to the Brandenburg plant. They import in a phenomenal amount of made in China Teslas to Europe as is. 170,000 in, in the year to date, I think. Wow. They, they've brought in cars into Europe that are made in China. And obviously, China hasn't been backwards about going forward. I mean, you know, we've got Mexico, they've got the Mexican plant that's happening. There's all sorts of press reports that yeah. they're going to build a plant in Indonesia. They, they are obviously they're not going to go ahead with that. <laughs> But, but, yeah. but since they've been in, in Europe, they've obviously embarked on more investments in Shanghai as well. So as you Shanghai say- Shanghai rolled out the two millionth car uh, Tesla, I think it was yeah. Model Y recently, which is- Amazing. When was it in 2019? Yeah. 2018? Yeah. Really, really impressive. So I think that it is a structural issue in Europe, but it is something that European politicians and, and European regulators, they need to be aware of. And all the regulations just came into effect mid-August as well. On the battery passport and, yeah. and, and everything like that. So, I mean, it's going to be very, very interesting to see what that means for the industry. Anyway, that's probably yeah. a discussion for another day. We will call it a day there. And I will say uh, thank you very much to Cormac for his time. Thank and you, uh, we'll, we'll speak uh, next month. Oh, and, and also we're both going to be at the Fast Markets Conference now in Amsterdam. So uh, if anybody is interested in talking to these sad, washed up uh, specimens, please drop us a <laughs> Yeah. See you in Amsterdam. Okay. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. So that brings us to the end of the podcast for September. 
As always, you can get more detail on all of the topics we've discussed and indeed many more that we don't have time to discuss on a monthly basis in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.